Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who's buying as much real estate in Iceland as I can before someone tells President Trump it's greener than Greenland. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Steve Schwartzman, the chairman and CEO of the private equity firm, The Blackstone Group, which he co-founded in 1985. He's also the former chairman of President Trump's Strategic and Policy Forum and the creator of the International Scholarship Program called the Schwartzman Scholars, which aims to help future leaders understand China better. I'm very excited to have him here because he's also author of a new book called What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence. Steve, welcome to Rico Decode. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, I have a lot. To, there's so much to talk about right now. I'm, I'm sure, sure to, where to start. There's Besides uh, Greenland, Iceland, wherever the heck we want to buy, we'll get into that because you can explain it for the people so that it's understandable in some realistic format. Um, but first, I want to talk a little bit about your background so people have a sense of who you are. Um, you're obviously one of the most famous investors around. You're, you run a group that is incredibly powerful, own, has owned lots of stuff. Is How many? $45 billion under... What, how much do you have under? We have... Um, 400, I'm sorry. Five, $548 billion right, under, under management. Right, exactly. You make all the venture capital of Silicon Valley seem small. No, they have a lot of money too. So let's talk a little bit about your background so people get a sense of you starting the Blackstone Group. You've had a fascinating history. You are born in uh, Philadelphia um, or near Philadelphia. Um, and your dad was a, as a dry grocer, is that correct? Well, basically he had a store that uh, looked a lot like uh, Bed Bath and beyond. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. And I got to work there uh, without a vote, starting at around 10 years of age. So so I got a, a real um, initiation into retail, mm-hmm. and, and that's why I'm in finance. Right. Okay. Of course, you're not in retail. I worked in retail, too. So, and then you came up through, you went to amazing schools, you were, you, you served, and, uh, and everything. So, talk a little bit about sort of your journey to the Blackstone, which you started in, uh, in 1985 with people. Peterson, with just a small amount of money, you were starting it as. Yeah, we started uh, with four hundred thousand dollars, right. and you know today uh, we have a market capitalization of uh, sixty billion. Mm-hmm. So that's a good run, yes, but it, it is. doesn't happen instantaneously. Right. Uh, and before that, I worked at Lehman Brothers. That's mm-hmm. where I started uh, my career, and I finished up as head of the merger and a- acquisition department. We were the most active uh, department on, on Wall Street uh, doing that. And before that, I was at uh, Harvard Business School. I was in the Army for a while mm-hmm. and uh, went to Yale before that, uh, which was really fascinating. I um, <laughs> my, my first English paper, uh, I got a 
Melville, mm-hmm. uh, Bartleby the Scrivener. Oh, my God. And then my second English paper, I got a 66. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the trend was not looking good. Right. And my professor called me in for a meeting and, uh, uh, to review my papers. And um, he said, um, I'm here to review the papers. I said, well, there's not much mm-hmm. reason for a meeting. Mm-hmm. He, so he said, why is that? I said, because... I had nothing to say, <laughs> and I said it poorly. <laughs> and he said, my God, you're not stupid. So you're not uh, stupid. So there is some chance for you, young man. So he taught me. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, I'll teach you mm-hmm. how to write, and I'll give you the answers because you can't think and write at the same time. Right, okay. And then after you learn how to uh, to write, uh, then— You can learn uh, how to think. I'll teach you how to think, and I, instead of failing out— my first year, I ended up on Dean's list, but it was really because of him. Right. Oh, fascinating. So, teachers. We're going to get to the topic of teachers because you have some interesting proposals around that. Um, so, you have—you obviously, you're extraordinarily famous as a private equity. You're one of the most successful. Blackstone is invests all over. Give people a sense of what you all have invested in, especially lately. Well, we do a variety of things. We're in the, what's called the alternative asset business. Mm-hmm. That's like a funny kind of name for things other than just stocks and bonds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so we buy companies. Right. Uh, we buy real estate and we fix it up. We fix up the companies too. Uh, we, we're the largest investor in hedge funds. Uh, and we also are in uh, the credit extension business. We lend money mm-hmm. uh, to, to lesser rated credits. So we do other things within that, uh, but it's four big buckets uh, with um, $548 billion. We're the largest in the world doing this uh, type of work uh, by far. Uh, No one else is is close, really, size-wise. And so in Wall Street, you kind of have an enormous reputation. You've obviously extended that to politics and other areas where you try to influence different policies and things like that. Um, but one of the things recently I want to get into, so I want to get a sense that you're an extraordinarily powerful person. You're also a very close advisor of President Trump or have been. Uh, I, every time I read an article, he's calling you and ha- getting some advice. Um, he should call you more. And you were on this strategic and policy forum and have backed him and have been a, a pretty big donor to Republican, um, different different Republican administrations. Let's talk a little bit about where we are right now. Um, and let's first talk about why you decided to write this book, this idea of how you get to be successful. Right. Well, I, I really had no particular interest in writing a book, but something happened to me that was pretty interesting. I... Like a lot of people who are in the business world, and uh, I started my company, you basically spend a lot of time trying to convince people to give mm-hmm. you money if you're right. a money manager. And, um, you know, probably around five years ago, I was in the Middle East meeting with the head of a very large uh, sovereign wealth fund, and there was a new royal family member who was in charge. I was supposed to shake his hand mm-hmm. five minutes and disappear, and I, I, you know, I, he started asking me, some questions, um, like, how do you do what you do? Mm-hmm. We're, we're not as good as you. Right. And how do you think about investing? How do you think about growing your firm? How do you, how do you think about who you hire? Um, how, do you, how do you think about the world? 
and how it's changing. Mm -hmm. So we ended up spending two and a half hours, mm -hmm. and I thought that was interesting. I tried to sell him some of our products, yeah. and, and he said, uh, don't, he, wanted advice from he you. said, don't waste your time. We buy your products anyhow. Right. I don't want to talk about that. I need, I need your advice. So I did that, and then uh, sort of strangely, it started happening all over the place. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, for me, it's pretty easy to talk about things like that because I've done that with my life, and uh, nobody wanted to hear about me mm -hmm. in terms of individual products. Mm -hmm. And so after doing that for a few years... I said, boy, this is starting to get boring. Maybe I ought to write a book. Right. That Ray uh, Dalio and, has one. And, and, and no, this was before Ray. Okay. Uh, and who's a good friend of mine. Uh, and, uh, you know, that way I don't have to tell everybody the same mm -hmm. story. And that was the genesis. And talk a bit about what you're trying to do here, because you have lots of stories of how different people, how you succeeded and how others succeeded and, and the, the things. So you're trying to give an idea of your history of how you got to where you got. Well, that's part of it. But basically, I'm trying to tell people how they should be thinking about things if, if they want to achieve things. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a way of, of looking uh, at, at something new. And if you're going to start something, for example, you know, you're in the entrepreneurial world, mm -hmm. uh, don't, don't start something that somebody else has already done, mm -hmm. just hoping you could do it a little bit better. Come up with something really grand, really big, mm -hmm. really new, uh, and make sure it's going to work because we only have so many shots on goal. Mm -hmm. If mm -hmm. we're pursuing one thing, we can't be doing something else. Sure. So it has to be, I call it a worthy fantasy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once you have that, mm -hmm. it's time to put 100% of your efforts mm -hmm. uh, into the pursuit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I talk about what, it, what it's like to try and start something and get people to join you. Because usually that's a tough thing because usually great people are already working somewhere else. They're being paid a lot. You don't have so much money when you start. And, but So you have to convince people. Mm -hmm. And the people you hire at the beginning, you often outgrow. Mm -hmm. Normally, we're all kind. We don't, we don't want to let somebody sure. go who, you know, has been with us. But if they can't keep up and you, you, you don't, you know, sort of replace them with somebody who's better for the next phase, then the whole organization bogs down. Mm -hmm. so, so you have to make those choices. Uh, and you have to um, recognize that when you're selling your new product or what service, whatever it is, you usually fail mm -hmm. uh, the first time. You think it's great. Mm -hmm. What you learn in life is that most people don't like to change. Right. And you're there as a change agent. And so usually they say no. So, so you have to have enormous tolerance for rejection and pain. It is painful for people to tell you what you believe in. Mm -hmm is from their perspective irrelevant or worthless. And so, so the tenacity that it takes and the loneliness that it takes is what most people who go into entrepreneurial activities are not prepared for. It's, it's not like regular life. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a 24-7. Uh, it, it extends almost seven days a week if you really want to be successful. And um, it's a journey. 
So you, this is a lot of stuff that I hear out of mouths of Silicon Valley people. This is these are kind of their idea. Like this is something they've talked about. Do you consider yourself an entrepreneur? Would you call yourself that? Yeah, uh, and you know, not only do I do this in business and mm-hmm. in, in, in my charitable activities, I, I don't typically give money to something that's existing. I usually like to identify a really, really important mm-hmm. problem, and then I'll, I'll have a solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to to implement that, you have to build an organization. And uh, unfortunately for me, because if you have to build an organization, you have to pay for a bunch of it. Right. Uh, right. Because the organization doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And I love doing things like that. So talk about your Chinese scholars thing, the Schwarzman scholars. The, the Schwarzman scholars was, um, th- that was, that's a pretty amazing thing. I'm going to Beijing. Uh, mm-hmm. Next week, um, okay. because it's the opening of the school year, and I always go over and meet uh, all the new students and give a lecture and things of that time. But this was started as a result of a university there called Chenhua, which mm-hmm. is their number one university, yeah, uh, having its 100th anniversary. And uh, the president uh, was soliciting me for money in the midst of the financial crisis, so his timing was awful. Mm-hmm. So. He actually retired, and mm-hmm. I thought I was safe. Mm-hmm. And then the next president showed up. Mm-hmm. I was living in Paris, and he flew to Paris. If you're Chinese and you work for a university, you just don't fly to Paris. Right. You, you just don't buy well, a you ticket for the like rich in guy, America. But okay, all right. right? You, you need special <laughs> yeah. permissions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I realized this was a big deal. And, mm-hmm. you know, he wanted me to support the university. And so uh, he said, look, I'll. I'll be really open. What would you like to do? Mm-hmm. So I said, I'd like to. He said, would you like to do a a, uh, a student exchange? I said, well, there are tons of student exchanges. That's pretty boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, I'd like to do something different. I'd, I'd, so I'd like to use, in effect, the Rhodes Scholarship model. I'd like to bring the best people from around the world to come to China to spend a year to learn about China all things Chinese, whether it's Chinese history, politics, you know, sort of travel around the country. I thought it would be really neat if they had uh, a mentor mm-hmm. who was a famous person in China who could take them home to their families, uh, have them do special travel, also work uh, at, a, at a Chinese ministry or not-for-profit or a company for a little bit, mm-hmm. as well as get a master's degree. So with that as the concept... The president there said, sounds great. That's mm-hmm. expensive. Right. Uh, I said, yeah, mm-hmm. guess so. <laughs> uh, so I said, look, I think we need like $300 million. I'll put up 100 uh, and I'll raise the rest of the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm just like a door-to-door salesman. Mm-hmm. Anybody I met in that period, including Ray mm-hmm. uh, Dalio, who gave me $10 million to start uh, in and ultimately went to $25 million. And like, you know, houses and apartments, when you renovate them, mm-hmm. takes twice as long, costs twice as much. Mm-hmm. So by the time we finish this exercise, it actually needs $600 million. Mm-hmm. For this, and we're, for this For the Schwarzman Scholars. So, so we're up to uh, $575 million. But what's important is this was the first time in probably 200 years that the best and the brightest from around the world went to China. Usually the Chinese come right. to the great universities in America, whether it's Stanford or Harvard or Yale or Princeton. 
there's a huge, you know, it's, it's like Absolutely. 15 to 1 Chinese coming here compared to Americans studying. And all of a sudden, um, the best in the world were going uh, to China. We accept uh, about uh, 3 to 4% of the people who apply. So it's mm -hmm. much more selective, if you will, than at Stanford or, or, or Harvard. Uh, and I got um, President Obama, uh, because uh, was somebody I knew, I uh, happened to be in Washington. I was chairman of the Kennedy Center mm -hmm. there. So I would see him a lot. Uh, and he said, hey, what's what's going on? Mm -hmm. I said, well, I'm starting this thing in China. He said, what a great idea. Mm -hmm. He said, how can I help you? So I said, well, you can either do a video or you can do a letter of endorsement or something. He said, fine, I'm, I'm glad to mm -hmm. do that. So I got that letter, and they were about to announce this at the Great Hall of the People mm -hmm. in China. And I knew if I had a letter from the President of the United States, there was a new President of China right. called President Xi. Mm -hmm. I had met him in 2007. He was the party secretary of Shanghai. And so we got the letter over to President Xi, and of course, he wrote an endorsement letter. Mm -hmm. So I had two presidents mm -hmm. endorsing this non-existent program. Right. Uh, and uh, in China, that's a big deal. Right, it is indeed. Because it's the first academic program any president of China has ever endorsed. And, and so um, with that, uh, we built a building. I thought it would be nice uh, to have everybody living together in the program, sort of like an uh, Oxford-Cambridge you know, type of college. Mm -hmm. And it's turned out to be an amazing success. These students are... How many scholars have gone through it right now? Uh, we we have a maximum of 200. We started with 110. We're now at 140. Mm -hmm. uh, this will be the fourth year. We, we're playing with the curriculum, you know, to get it just right. Uh, and we'll get up to our 200. So, this is a long way. The reason I want you to talk about this is, why did you pick China to do this? Oh, the reason was was quite clear that... In uh, America was the start of populism. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you could see that as a result of the financial crisis, uh, that, uh, you know, regular people were having a very difficult time. And, and usually that's the start of populism. Uh, politicians typically use that anger mm -hmm. to either get elected sure. uh, or, or to you know, create certain policies mm -hmm. that they think will will be um, at least popular. Uh, usually what happens with those types of policies is they don't change anything. Mm -hmm. And those people stay in a bad they financial do. situation. And, and, and so what happens is they start running out of domestic targets, mm -hmm. and then they look for foreign devils. Mm -hmm. and, and so I was pretty sure that China would be that target. Uh, for America, and and the reason was that the wealth uh, was being transferred to the emerging market mm -hmm. countries, and China is the largest by far. Uh, the jobs were moving there as well because it was so much cheaper to manufacture uh, there, and so the combination of jobs plus wealth was going to lead to a lot of anger, and it became clear to me that if you didn't set up links between these two countries, if you didn't explain what was going on to each, because nobody is a saint mm -hmm. uh, in these types of situations, and, and that that kind of transparency and glue and understanding 
with a group of people developed over time it is one way that you make sure the world remains a peaceful place mm-hmm. and a non-hostile place. And so my vision was that based on lifespan, mm-hmm. you'd probably have somewhere around 13,000, 14,000 Schwarzman scholars, a steady state, and um, that they would form a network that would be one of the most extraordinary networks in the world by the character and expertise of the people spread around the world, each going back to where they came from mm-hmm. to be future leaders. Okay. So that's a great vision. Fast forward to today. We've at complete cross-purposes with China right now, it seems, due to President Trump's tariffs. How do you look at the situation? Because here's a country, uh, and we'll talk about technology in the next section, that is critical, that is that is the absolute competitor to the United States in technology. It's also the a partner. It's also a lot. It's a sort of a, a symbiotic relationship. How do you look at that today when you have a scholarship program designed to do this, which is create bridges? Right. And we don't have that right now. Well, I mean, I know a lot of this is theater, but and, and about economics. But well, well I, I I had the right concept. I just got the timing wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in other words, I thought this problem was going to take at least ten years mm-hmm. uh, to manifest. Right. And. It, it's now in a theater near you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what's happening now, and and so one of the things that is fascinating about this is is the role that the Schwarzman scholars uh, can play, and and also as a result of th- the things like this and some other stuff, I, I get to have a very unusual um, you know position between the two countries just because. Um, I'm, I'm trusted by both of them, and, and you know, you, I'm an American first, that's for sure. But you, you'd like to work out something where there can be a transition from a, a very particular kind of emerging markets mm-hmm. uh, economy that's highly protected, where it's tariffs and taxes. People forget why this is all going on. We're three times the United States, is, so it costs somebody in the United States three times to hire to sell a product into China as the exact same product manufactured in China uh, taken back to the United States. And and so what the U.S. government is trying to do to make it really simple is trying to have these uh, tariffs equal. And the way the numbers work, tariffs and taxes were 9% for the Chinese entering and 27% if the U.S. tried to bring a good. So the U.S. is, is trying to do, to make it simple, they don't care if the Chinese come down to nine for us or, or they go down to 18 and we go up to mm-hmm. 18 or we go up to 27 mm-hmm. where they are because this tariffs and taxes. And and so what what's trying to be achieved is, is just sort of equality. At the moment, this is a very unbalanced playing field mm-hmm. in China's favor. There are a lot of reasons they're successful. They work really hard. They're really dedicated. Uh, they do some fascinating things. They have but, some cogent but, industrial policy. But but their integration and what they can do um, from a policy point of view is something we can't do. And the playing field is not level. Mm-hmm. They recognize that. And what these negotiations are trying to do, and it can't happen in a day because mm-hmm. they've been doing this unbelievably successfully for 40 years is to try and get these two countries on roughly equivalent types of foundations. And 
Uh, if you're Chinese, as you could imagine, it's been 40 years of the fastest growth in the mm -hmm. history of the world. Why change? Mm -hmm. If you're American, where, and it's not just American, it's developed world, mm -hmm. you, you sort of look at this and say, but, but this isn't fair. You know, we should well, really... we've also been in love with cheap products and having our goods brought to us immediately and easy, all kinds of reasons. We're sort of stuck on that. Yeah, well, there are all kinds of things that people mm -hmm. get stuck on. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but to have uh, a system that's more or less the best product should win or the cheapest product should win is fine. Mm -hmm. the, the best product should always win. But we should have systems that are roughly equivalent for entry and exit. We should have equal access to markets. Uh, there's all kinds of issues. So you would imagine a lot of people in Silicon Valley, which I cover quite a bit, is are concerned about this because they've had this relationship with China that's been very beneficial. Yes. Um, in terms of products, in terms of all kinds of things, technology. Um, and they've done a lot of business with China in, in ways that have been lucrative to them. How do you, what do you say to them when you're saying this? It seems very reasonable coming from you, by the way, compared to the president. I'm sorry, but it does. Um, but how do you then make that argument to a lot of companies? I just was interviewing uh, the CSO of Huawei, which is trying to, you know, a lot of tech companies yeah. trying to sell into Huawei. When we have this global economy, how do you make that argument that it doesn't blow everything up in terms of being able to be successful? Well... Nobody wants to blow any, everything up. I mean, that's, that's like a terrible thing and, uh, at the moment uh, because the negotiations have, um, you know, broken down. Uh, that doesn't mean they will stay down, by the way. Right, of course. Uh, it's just these things really uh, ebb and flow uh, that, that the whole world is slowing down. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you have a situation where, you know, China slows the people who sell to China uh, raw materials slow. Our people get scared in the states. They start slowing. So, so it's a basic loser, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in terms of where we all are. Sure. And hopefully, in the fullness of time, whatever that is, mm -hmm. uh, both countries will recognize uh, that that there need to be uh, changes. The Chinese understand this. Mm -hmm. um, the technology stuff is different, uh, and. The, the technology stuff, and maybe you want to talk about that mm -hmm. in, in, yeah. in the next uh, yeah. section, is is looked at differently and treated differently between the two countries. All right. We're here with Steve Schwartzman. He's the CEO of the Blackstone Group. He's also written a book called What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence. We're talking about China, but when we get back, we'll be talking about technology and how it is interacting uh, with the global uh, business environment. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. 
Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're here with Steve Schwartzman. He's the CEO of the Blackstone Group. He's also written a book called What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence. So one of the things we're talking about is technology and sort of its reaction, not just to China, but sort of the the global environment. They feel uh, it's under siege a lot. The tech lash is happening, the damage that tech might have been doing to society. It's under siege from the president uh, many times. Google just is the recent focus of but Amazon has been others. How do you look at sort of the market right now for technology companies when you're, you know, as an investor and someone who uh, thinks a lot about these issues? Well, tech is the most profound uh, force in investing today because it's so disruptive mm-hmm. that, that there are very few companies um, that are not tech companies that will be able to withstand uh, the changes uh, that technology brings in terms of preserving their business model. Mm-hmm. So, so whatever you look at today uh, in terms of the investment world, you could look at tech itself, and, and that's really fascinating mm-hmm. and, and, you know, with very high growth. But you have to look at all other Absolutely. companies and say, are you going to be a beneficiary or a victim mm-hmm. uh, of, of these profound changes? So it's really changed the way. Uh, any anybody who's informed looks at investing. So how did how did you look at that? You've been you know you invested in hotels, you've invested in all kinds of different things, but I don't think there's an industry that's not impacted by technology in terms of and mostly negative. It seems it's like that it, whatever it's whether it's cars, whether it's hotels, whether it's real estate, it's all affected by automation or robotics or AI or some new, especially the newer things that are coming down the pipe. Seems like most people think tech has already done a lot of damage and impact, and what's coming is rather larger in comparison. Yeah, what's coming is 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 much, much larger. Right. And, you know, I, I have some exposure to uh, what's going on in AI. Mm-hmm. I, I gave a very large uh, gift to uh, MIT to start... Mm-hmm. Um, a new college of computing uh, to deal with the ethical uh, issues involved with AI as well as uh, accelerated uh, research. And and, uh, I've done something with Oxford University, which was also quite substantial to deal with, um, you know, sort of the ethical elements of AI. And so I I get to, you know, sort of hang around Mm -hmm. uh, the people who are the state of the art. It's quite fascinating for Mm -hmm. me because the whole field is evolving so fast. Absolutely. And surprisingly, because I'm, I'm not a technologist, I'm like a generalist, they mm-hmm. would say in the old days, mm-hmm. uh, is, is, is that there's, there's this reaching out that everybody is doing in the technology community to figure out how these technologies can be introduced without enormous disruption. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was surprised that... If you talk to the founders of the internet, mm-hmm. they think they did a very bad thing mm-hmm. uh, on balance. Mm-hmm. They thought uh, it was cool uh, to set up the internet mm-hmm. and it was going to facilitate all the wonderful things that it has mm-hmm. uh, in terms of you know, global connections, knowledge transfer, and so forth. There was almost none of them who understood the damage that mm-hmm. would be done no, by social media. Uh, disruption, uh, you know, revolutions being triggered. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the the ones I talk to say, geez, if I could have this all back, 
Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what I would do. Right. Uh, and, and so as a result of those people, because uh, the internet seems old, but it's relatively so mm-hmm. young, those people are all still around. Mm-hmm. So now that AI is coming, they, they basically say, we can't screw this up mm-hmm. a second time. Right. But nobody's figured out exactly how to control this yet. So for, Oh, they can screw it up a second time. Uh, they, they, they oh, they can. They don't want to. All right. Uh, so, so you say. So, so, well, it depends who you talk to. Yeah. These aren't company people per se. Mm-hmm. The, the, these are more academics mm-hmm. and people who are researchers. Sure. And, and, and so there's this fascinating thing going on around the world where, you know, I, I'm lucky enough, um, you know, because I'm visible mm-hmm. and, and I'm harmless. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, I'm not a technology person of people reaching out saying, I'm doing this. Can't we set up something mm-hmm. uh, to, to inform governments so if they, we want them to regulate something, we can do things voluntarily. Uh, let's all talk together. And this is like a global mm-hmm. kind of set of discussions. And how do we educate governments so that they, they do the right thing, not overreact, uh, not interfere with progress, but modulate the excesses that would come from, for example, workforce so talk. I'm going to get to workforce in a minute, but talk about that regulatory environment because the internet and technology has, has not been uh, regulated at all right. since its start. It hasn't, except for one or two small things, and most of the regulation has been beneficial, like Section 230. In fact, it's been very beneficial to it. You know, as someone who's an investor, you obviously want to maximize your profits, but do you, and 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 being involved in technology would have made has made all these people extraordinarily wealthy, uh, as including your investments and others. How do you look at what should happen to this industry as it's moving forward? As someone who's been in investments for a while, well, it depends. You know, with the existing technologies or new technologies, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't think anybody knows what to do with the existing technologies mm-hmm. um, and and social media. And, and sort of the, um, the, the dislocations mm-hmm. uh, that that occurs and the bullying and, and, you know, sort of attacking of people and suppression of free speech, just the opposite of what people thought was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I haven't met anybody who knows what to do with that. Mm-hmm. On AI, uh, which is really just sort of starting uh, now it compared really is, to yeah. what it's going to be, uh, in, in AI, people basically look at it from the ones I've talked to who said, geez, this technology can do a lot of, like, remarkable things. We've got, you know, sort of uh, concerns in the defense military area mm-hmm. uh, of autonomous war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and where does that take us uh, as a society? We've got um, the, the other work-oriented uh, things where how many people are going to be displaced how fast, what happens to those people, uh, and what happens literally to a tax base, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and, and what happens to humans in the greatest sense mm-hmm. as, you know, uh, this type of technology uh, can, you know, become artists uh, and, and musicians and, mm-hmm. you know, do, do those functions uh, almost as well or in some cases better uh, than humans. And, and so you have some philosophic uh, questions, and then then you have practical ones. Is there some way to make sure that unemployment doesn't skyrocket? Mm-hmm. And 
there's nobody uh, except perhaps the people selling certain products mm -hmm. uh, who wants that to happen. Right. On the same time, uh, the benefits um, uh, for AI in particular are, are profound. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's why people are starting to talk and have meetings across the world and say, how do we make sense out of this without politicians overreacting? And also, uh, there has to be a piece for the media. Mm -hmm. Because most media people, except someone like yourself, who mm -hmm. specializes in this area, uh, doesn't really understand uh, what's going to be happening. Not just what's happening now, but where this is going. And, and so typically, the media overreacts. Mm -hmm. And then that creates an environment where it's hard to do sensible things from a regulatory uh, what perspective. What regulatory things would you suggest? I'm not sure yet because mm -hmm. it's just starting. Right. So let me get get to the related issue is just this week the Business Roundtable uh, put out a statement, which is put out before and then taken back. So it's gone back and forth. So uh, where they suddenly decided that Milton Friedman is an asshole, essentially. Like, no more Milton Friedman. That profits aren't, shouldn't, shareholders mm -hmm. shouldn't be the only stakeholders. And these, I think they're calling them stakeholders now. I think right. that's the word they're using, which includes employees, which includes consumers, which includes society. You hang out with Jamie Dimon and the gang. So why now? Are are you all scared of like pitchforks or what's what what precipitated this? Well, I think Kara, your visualization was quite good. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I I think there's a basic uh, hostility at the moment, um, uh, generally uh, towards almost every institution in society. Mm -hmm. uh, business is one of those uh, institutions. Uh, you know, in the in the Democratic Party on the left, you have a lot of uh, very strong and sort of unprecedented uh, kind of views uh, from from an American um, uh, history point of view, uh, which has support um, mm -hmm. because people are um, um, pretty desperate. Mm -hmm. uh, we we've had, um, I guess, two years ago, the Federal Reserve measured. Uh, uh, the population and, and, and uh, forty percent of Americans uh, could, couldn't write uh, a four hundred dollar check in an emergency, right. and and so when you think about that, that's that's really horrible, and that's got to be changed. But in the meanwhile, it's more convenient to like hate something, mm -hmm. uh, and and so business is one of the entities that's that well, signaled. Well, let me out. push back on that. Like, first of all, most of the populism is going on the other side, and a lot of the fear mongering is happening on the right side, especially. And it's frightening to a lot of people. So, one of the things that I think is occurring is that people feel with ta with tax cuts for the wealthy and all kinds of things that there is. That, that, that they're being pushed down further with stagnant wages, with huge salaries. You yourself have a large salary. Um, that, that, that there has to be changes in the way business has a relationship with society at large. And I think I see it in tech because people feel that they're responsible for some of the problems that are having, whether it's being, um, whether, you know, a murder is broadcast on these tools and not stopped and creates a real problem in society. So I see it from a tech point of view, you can see the damage, but I think a lot of people feel that 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 they are not getting their the share that they own or the care that they have that they should have in society. But but the reason I'm not so sure it's just people on the left yelling that enough is enough. Well, they're, they're, they've got other plans for right. the society. Right. Right. Uh, whereas the people on the right don't economically. Right. 
the reason they feel this way is mm-hmm. that the world is changing. The economic world is changing. It's, it's moving, as you know, uh, into a knowledge economy. Right. Most people don't know that two-thirds of the workforce in the United States uh, has a high school education or less. Mm-hmm. Those people are not prepared for the modern world. And the people who are graduating uh, as a rule in, in, in that group uh, are not themselves being as well prepared as mm-hmm. they should. So if two-thirds of your workforce is basically not up for it, it's not the business community that created that. This is a political problem. Mm-hmm. People have to have different preparation. The business community can help retrain them, but but th- this is a problem of education, and and that's got to be changed. It's not a problem of income inequality. It's a problem of income insufficiency. So you talked about that. You you proposed a Marshall Plan for. Middle Explain class. Explain that. Yeah. Where are you with your Marshall plan? Well, right. I, I'm not General Marshall. Right, okay. Uh, you know, I'm just, uh, right. you know, somebody You're tries to... I try extraordinarily to wealthy man who was the year of the president, but go ahead. Well, I, I, I try and think yeah. about stuff that would be good for society. Okay. So so I think that if you have close to half of your country that, that can't write a $400 check, they need more money. Mm-hmm. So, so it's just a question of how you get that to them. Mm-hmm. I think a really good way is to increase the minimum wage to $15 mm-hmm. because it, it doesn't just affect the 15% of people who are on mm-hmm. minimum wage. What, what happens is you can't be paying, you know, sort of entry-level people one level and the people who work for you less. So basically it affects 40% mm-hmm. uh, of the workforce. And, and so forcing up those wages, which is in effect a tax on the business community, mm-hmm. is necessary. Uh, and a good thing. So why doesn't this happen? I mean, you're saying it's a tax on business. Some people could say these people contribute to the business community and should be paid more, just simply earn a living wage. And the business community, profits have never been higher. Wealth has never been higher. Stock market has never been higher. So uh, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. Right. I'm just talking about how to, right. how to mechanically mm-hmm. get that done. There are other ways to do it. But this is a good way because it encourages work. Uh, and once you're working... People stay working. Right. Uh, if you're not and just have transfer payments, then you don't have the incentive. So how does that happen in this incredibly partisan political environment? Because it's really, I think it's never been... I think in the business community, it's pretty widely understood mm-hmm. uh, that this this has to happen. Mm-hmm. Some people would say $15 in New York is a lot different than $15 in Wichita. Mm-hmm. And there needs to be adjustments. And and you don't do it one day uh, because you're not trying to disrupt everything. I, I, I think it's really important to have uh, more money mm-hmm. uh, for these people who, who, are, who are hurting. The second thing we have to do is change the education system. Mm-hmm. If you don't change it, this is going to get worse. Because not of current tax policy, which is highly progressive, uh, unlike, you know, what mm-hmm. people tend to say as slogans, that, you know, you, you have to educate people. And to do that, you know, there, there are a number of things that have to change. One of them is teachers. And uh, teachers are pretty poorly paid. You see these demonstrations on television mm-hmm. uh, and strikes. And, and, and so I think we need to get... Uh, teachers in a position where they can attract, uh, 
you know, sort of very high quality people. One way to do that mm -hmm. is to make teachers the only tax exempt occupation in the United States. Mm -hmm. And that would give them a very large boost in uh, income mm -hmm. just the day you did it. But the second benefit uh, is that they would be marked apart as a prestige institution. Mm -hmm. When I was young, teachers were a big deal. Right. And, and I wouldn't be where I was without, you know, the education that I got. I went to public schools and, you know, I got really sort of a pretty amazing change mm -hmm. for, for, for me. So I think, you know, that, uh, that, that change is very important. Another thing that I would do is I would take the older people, my generation. I don't feel old, mm -hmm. but apparently that's what the scoreboard says. Right, okay. Uh, and I would have four or five people from the greatest generation, as Tom Brokaw would call it, mm -hmm. who learned how to read, learned how to write, learned math skills, because we all did then, mm -hmm. and have them in each classroom as mentors, assistant teachers. You'd barely have to pay them anything because they're mostly retired uh, and uh, people looking for something to do. So instead of one teacher for whatever the number is, 30, mm -hmm. 30 children, mm -hmm. you know, you could have five, right. you can have six, you can isolate and transmit values, have somebody looking out for each one of the children. And that, I think, would make a big difference. You, you also have some other things you can do where, where the business community, um, much like Germany, uh, can um, basically adopt <laughs> schools and train people for real jobs uh, so that when people come out of high school, uh, they, they have a place to go uh, with a company that really wants them. So there are a whole variety of things that are very easy to do uh, to, to help turn the corner on education. So we're going to talk about that in the next session, how you're going to make some of these things happen. Because the idea of saying, the business roundtable saying this is one thing, actually committing to it and actually doing things is quite another. And again, they've flip-flopped on this several times. So when you're, what I want you to think about is the idea of here we are in the most, I would say the most partisan, most polarized society caused by tech, caused by lot, caused by President Trump, caused by lots of things. How do we move on from here? You have, you are at the top echelons of influence. I want you to think about that when we get back. We're here with Steve Schwarzman, the CEO of the Blackstone Group. He's written a book called What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. 
Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're here with Steve Schwartzman. He's the CEO of the Blackstone Group, and his book is called What It Takes. So, Steve, what does it take to it, turn this very angry country in a new direction? Well, I think it takes um, it takes leadership from the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes some good programs where people can agree uh, that it's going to uh, move everybody uh, in society uh, forward. I've never seen such uh, divisiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you attribute it to? I have an opinion, but you, what is yours? Well, I, I, I think, you know, part of it, you know, comes from the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Part of it started, you know, as, as early as, uh, I think, uh, 2010, mm-hmm. uh, when the previous administration was so angry at um, the business community. They were attacked all the time, mm-hmm. and, and there was a lot of attacking that went on, which was unprecedented. Uh, from my perspective, we, we in the olden days, we had Nixon who didn't like hippies. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this really escalated in the previous administration. And then it's, you know, I think I think the fact that, um, that Donald Trump was elected president was such a shock to everybody mm-hmm. that, um, you know, uh, his presidency started with opposition mm-hmm. uh, from the Democrats before he ever took office, and it's just escalated. So this is the Democrats' fault, given... No, the- I think it's it's everybody's fault. Mm-hmm. But but I've never seen a situation where you elected a president and he was opposed before he ever started. Mm-hmm. This is actually new stuff. Mm-hmm. This has never happened in, in you know, I'm... How I, do you assess then some of these statements that are really, you know, I think what's interesting about the business community that I find when I talk to them is that they kind of want to have an a la carte I like this part, but right. I don't like the racism part. It, some of this stuff is also unprecedented. These statements are unprecedented. I think there were six today alone. I forget what it was, King of Israel, whatever the heck, whatever the daily crazy tweet is. Um, how do you, it, it creates a situation where it's very, that he's walking right into what you're saying happened to him and and making, reinforcing what people think. Well, I don't know how to unpack this. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I'm 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 just a person. Oh, uh, and Steve. and you know, <laughs> I I, I see all this stuff like you right. do. And so you can and, call up people and well, make I, a difference. I, I can I can call people. I can try and make a difference. But mm-hmm. the society is 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 so divided now. Mm-hmm. It's 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 really unprecedented mm-hmm. uh, in 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 my life, and it's it's totally dysfunctional and bad for the country. So what happens what, from your perspective? Because I think the point is, is you have to get people to have a commonality that doesn't exist anymore in order to move forward on issues 
whatever they're, they're challenging issues around AI or whether challenging issues around income inequality or insufficiency, as you call it, or climate change or a wide range of things that are clearly important issues to work as a group together. I, I think these are all really, you know, sort of exceptionally uh, important issues, and they, they will be addressed because they have to be addressed. Uh, and, you know, whether it gets addressed in the short term or it takes longer, uh, I, I think these are imperatives uh, that the, the society will find a way. Typically, uh, the way things work is you have a crisis of some type, which mm -hmm. which gets changes, or it gets so bad that, that you know, there becomes somebody who can bring uh, both sides together, mm -hmm. or, or somebody changes their behavior and they bring both sides together. Uh, at, the, at the moment, that's difficult to see on either side mm -hmm. uh, at the moment, and things change. America's dynamic. So you started by saying the Democrats attacking Trump. What would you tell Trump to do to fix the problem? He's, after all, the president, so he's at the top no matter how you slice it. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I can't talk about what I say to somebody. No, not, uh, not what you say to them, but what, but, what is the, what is, as a leader, saying these things does create divisity. On top of it, it creates more. And I understand you could say it's a reaction to a reaction of a reaction of a reaction. Yeah. But at some point, someone is the president of the United States and of all the people at the same time. So how do you get back to that idea? Or is it impossible given, you know, he gets on Twitter and then someone gets on Twitter. It, it's fascinating the use of Twitter and all this. Right. I, I leave this to you. This is all. <laughs> I, I would this, shut down Twitter, this, Steve. This That's all. what I would do. I'd throw them off Twitter. I'd throw them all off Twitter. Yeah, I've, I've never they used. all have to get off of it. I, I've never used Twitter. I, well, we're being governed by it at this just, point. It's we're in new territory. New territory. So where do, how do you come back from that? We, you know, here you are talking about these sort of eternal ideas of our country that are sort of going through a ringer that they've never been through. And you have to sort of wonder how you then get back to, I guess, norms. With some people, wasn't normal. For others, it was better, you know, and everybody everybody's feels like, you know, I think I was fascinated. That's why I was fascinated by this business roundtable idea of that you can you can start to talk about a commonality of a country. But, but you know, what's interesting about the BRT stuff mm -hmm. Uh, almost all of us don't need the the BRT definitions. Right. All of us, uh, you know, Blackstone is is one of the best places to work in the United States, according mm -hmm. to surveys. We take care of our, our community. We committed to the Obamas to hire fifty thousand veterans. We we have like three quarters. Actually, it's about eighty percent of our people you know, spend uh, time volunteering on work time. We do all kinds of things for uh, our employees, and they're very high paid. They get continual uh, education. People seldom ever leave. Mm -hmm. and, and so when we sit and make decisions, we're aware that we're part of, a, of, of an integrated system. And if we don't do the right things for all of our constituencies, then, you know, um, things aren't going to work well. I mean, just even from a self-interest point of view, mm -hmm. you, you, you have to treat everyone with dignity. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you need to be uh, diverse. You need to, to do that. You actually need to go out and recruit mm -hmm. uh, uh, and train. Uh, and, and so, you know, we've taken... Women, for example, who were very slow going into finance for yeah. reasons, 
we went to universities and hired them when they were sophomores and juniors just to see that people in the business community weren't like evil. Mm -hmm. uh, and now our, our pool of female applicants is way up. We've increased from 15% to 40%. Our entry level of people uh, who are women who are terrific, uh, but were scared to basically apply before. Mm -hmm. so, so we're addressing all these issues. The business community at the, at the big end, like um, the business roundtable companies, mm -hmm. everybody works on these issues because we want a better society. Uh, and, and, you know, we also want to make, you know, a lot of profit because that's what we're set up to do. Mm -hmm. But you can't do that at, at the expense of, of, of unbalancing things. And even some of the stuff, um, you know, like, like energy conservation, what we found is we can do things very cheaply in, in certain areas that have huge returns and are great for the environment. And, and so we all have departments mm -hmm. that do this. And, and so it's, it's, it's good that the BRT articulated this for society, but the large companies already have this going on. So I want to finish up, Leslie, but how, again, I, I, the, the idea of, you know, I think a lot of people are weary. A lot of people are tired. They feel uh, cynical and angry, all kinds of things. On every single side feels that way. There's almost no commonality among groups, and there has to, everyone has to sort of go in their corners. If you had to think about where the, the growth is going to be as, as a person who's an investor, just as a pure investor, where do you see the growth happening? You can have growth that happens on the backs of people, or you can have growth that happens with more of an idea of a larger society, a societal impact. Are, are you talking in the United States in or globally? In the United States and globally. What, what are you looking at uh, from an investment point of view? Well, the, the, the world keeps changing. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, if, if you look at interesting opportunities, uh, tech and different parts of tech, of course, uh, have, have uh, huge opportunities. People's experiences, um, live entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we own theme parks and things like that. You know, people want experiences. They will pay for experiences more than they will pay for things. They will move to cities as opposed to be in the suburbs. They will, they will live in smaller places, not as elegant in mm -hmm. cities, for the opportunity to experience um, the the. the good things that cities mm -hmm. can bring them. I, I live in New York, and whether it's, you know, Broadway or, or the, 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 the Philharmonic or, you know, the myriad, the great museums, people will downscale their lives uh, to go and uh, do that. So we've done an amazingly good job making money buying something as pedestrian as warehouses. Mm -hmm. Why? Because this is how the Internet and Amazon and the other great retailers mm -hmm. get their product to their customer. So just doing something as simple, I think we were the largest purchaser of, of, of warehouses in the world uh, over the last um, um, eight years. Be because once you realize you have a trend like that, yeah, delivery. you can play out yeah. uh, delivery. So we, we look for things uh, like this um, all over, and then we look for certain things um, that are more structural when, when a large company is selling something that hadn't 
really been independent, mm-hmm. often the, those smaller businesses don't get as much attention. Right. And, and so it's, it's a lot easier to fix those and make them work right. There's no, never a shortage uh, of things uh, to invest in. Right. So lastly, I want to talk about something that's also important to tech, which is immigration. It's been another divider. One of the things that I thought was really shocked, surprising was how how little tech talked about that, even though most of the founders of the tech companies are all immigrants, first-time immigrants, yes. first-generation immigrants. How does that issue get settled? The You know, the appalling things that are happening at the border are... Talk about divisive. It's pretty right. Leave, leave, leave the border out for right. a start. Okay. Uh, and, and, <laughs> I don't know and, how you can, ta- but okay. And, and, no, but you started right, yeah. asking yeah. me about yeah. about tech and mm-hmm. so forth. Um, it, it is very easy to fix uh, the H one B issue. Sure. And but and, that's in their self interests. But go ahead. Yeah. The H B one. No, yeah. I'm, I'm saying for, right. for the good of society, right. be, because when you let in uh, talented people. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess I forget the exact statistic. You can mm-hmm. tell me mm-hmm. the, the number of uh, large tech companies that had at least one of their All two of founders Everyone. that are foreign. Hundred percent. Okay. So what does that say? It was the same when you had n- nuclear power. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scientists came mostly from right. Germany right. after World War II. That it's essential that we open our borders for those type of mm-hmm. highly qualified people. There's not much disagreement between the two parties uh, on that. But, you know, the Democrats, and I started working on this Mm -hmm. unsuccessfully Mm -hmm. 15 years ago, they will not decouple the H-1B immigration issue from all other issues. By not doing that, you deny these very talented people staying in the United States They go back to China. They go to India. They are our competitors. We've educated them, and we haven't let them stay. To me, this is is completely nonsensical. Well, I think one of the reasons why is because you have to have an overall respect for immigration in general because you don't know where that talented person. There could be a talented little girl on the border of, with Mexico right now who could invent blank. I'm, I'm not... Right. I'm you not, don't know. You don't I'm, have, I'm not talking right. about that. Right. I, I'm, I'm talking about H-1B, I get talented that. people, and what we've managed to do with a philosophy that just doesn't address an, an immediate issue, but bundles it up mm-hmm. uh, with like five other major issues. That, that in this 15-year period, at least I've been looking at this, we've, we've created a monster uh, and a huge job creation outside the United States for purely political reasons. Uh, I, I, I look at this just as a practical person mm-hmm. and say, why would a country ever do this? We shouldn't. We should fix this, you know, as a first step. There are all kinds of other things that, you know, should be addressed in this area. And, you know, we could talk a long time about No, exactly. This. But I think it's the concept of not just making the talented people have an opportunity. It's an opportunity for people you don't know. One of the great things about tech is you don't know where the next thing is coming from. And I would argue that you don't know which immigrant is actually going to be the one to create the next trillion-dollar company. And it's not necessarily the talented 
in people from in top Indian universities or top universities in China. You just don't know. I think overall tech has benefited from the idea that anybody could create anything. And so therefore you have to be a little, cast a wider net of, of immigrants to come into this country. I, that's my feeling is why it's coupled together. Well, some of these are easy. I mean, right. these are people from great universities. Right, but that's different. Throwing... But, but I'm talking about people you don't know. That's the whole point of tech is that you don't know where it's coming from or, or but, any but, innovation. But some you do know. Uh, yes, <laughs> mostly. And, some of them. And, and they leave mm-hmm. because we have this sort of odd approach. Um, where do you think it's going to get settled? I, I, I don't think it's that hard to settle, we almost settled this, mm-hmm. um, you know, with um, a plan about, I think it was about three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. It was just about, just about there. And, you know, there are a lot of different ways you, you, you can settle this. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to make sure your um, assumptions are in line to make any kind of deal. If mm-hmm. one group thinks there should be open borders and anybody can enter in the United States. No one States, quite thinks open borders, just so uh, you know. I'm, no, I'm, I'm okay. just premising right, something. Right, okay. Uh, and, and another group says you shouldn't have open borders. Mm-hmm. Very hard to make a deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm, I'm not a politician. I'm, I'm just a business guy. I'm also a person. And I can design something. But right. but you know, uh, it's it's got to have enough uh, you know constituency uh, on both sides. I'm very uh, you know sort of focused on uh, DACA kids uh, right. because right. We, we had some in our uh, right. Schwarzman Scholar Program. A very group of talented and, people that are being pummeled by yeah. this ridiculous politics. Uh, yeah, and and um, n- nobody's going to deport them basically because they have nowhere to go and they're kids. So, so this one to wow. me, I mean, <laughs> who, what are you going to do, drop them at airports? I know, I agree. I, I mean, but, come on, let's yeah. be practical yeah. here. And so, you know, finding their way to a good situation, I think, is is very important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were raised as Americans and they didn't, you know, they were brought here. And and, and so, you know, I, I think that something in that area makes a lot of sense. And um, I just gave a major donation uh, actually two days ago, uh, you know, to help facilitate, you know, some of their registrations mm-hmm. and so forth. But I, I can't solve all problems for you. I could design things. All right. But, okay. But, all right. Uh, my last, I won't give you too much for a hard amount of time. But on it, but it is I, to me, it's indicative of, of an innovative culture. Like an open culture is an innovative culture. Like you can see, you can almost there's 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 been several books about this of what creates the most innovative cultures and all the elements that lead to great innovation. And it's called the geography of innovation. I think that's the name of the book. And then there's exactly the same things that bring it down. Like fear and intolerance and partisanship is the things that kill the things that are great about it. And then, uh, anyway, it's fairly interesting to see if we have an overall mood in this country. Last question. If you were right now 20 years old, you're like 25 now, um, <laughs> what, what would you do? What job, what opportunity would you go towards? Well, there are a few really great uh, areas, I think. You know, all kinds of areas of tech are really interesting. I, I still believe that finance um, is, is a fascinating uh, business because they keep printing more and more money mm-hmm. uh, all over the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so that gives you uh, opportunities. The entertainment business, even though the structure of the companies is changing and where the profit is, mm-hmm. the desire for experiences 
and what I guess you would call in the greatest sense software, it, it seems to be insatiable and it's global. Uh, and I think that's, um, that, that, that's a very interesting uh, area. So anyhow, uh, I appreciate you. Um, no problem. I appreciate it, Steve. I know we don't agree on everything, but, uh, but it's a really important thing to think about and talk about these things across different things. So this is Steve Schwartzman. He's a CEO and chairman of Blackstone, which is apparently his day job. Um, but he's written a book. <laughs> he apparently learned how to write. He's written a book called What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence. I would recommend it to everyone, and it'll be important uh, for all of us to start talking more, I think, going forward. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Steve, I can't believe you tweet. Do you? No, I don't. You need to stop. tell your friend to stop tweeting, really, and immediately, if not sooner. Um, but you don't have a Twitter account? I don't. Well, you should try it. It gets some attention sometimes. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media, Pivot, and Land of the Giants. Just search them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.